the theme for the evening talk is uh, the matter of uh, self. Just uh, recently I received from a friend, a psychotherapist uh, working in the uh, United States um, um, a fascinating manuscript and it was in the form of an autobiography and the essential thread of the manuscript is how some years ago she had fairly dramatic uh, experience which would and does fall into the shall we call it category of religious or spiritual or mystical or whatever which she couldn't explain to herself nor to uh, um, anyone else in a way that she could feel to be understood and the essence one might say of this experience which she had was pointing out to her her lack and absence of any self-existence anything true of self and what was essentially authentic was uh, there was no self and it was uh, a mirage uh, a fiction and the intensity of this having and been living a relatively ordinary life had some exposure to um, transcendental um, meditation and other things but this experience kind of blew, blew her away and the outcome of it was a kind of quest in her life to help understand what happened to her but every time she says and records in the book which reads like a like a, a, a novel that every time she went to various authority figures to in her own circles to try to understand this uh, experience and she spoke of no self she spoke of emptiness, of uh, 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 non-existence of I and me and my, that those that she communicated with, it sent up alarm signals for them. And she was uh, viewed as having a, a problem. She was uh, viewed as uh, a lack or a, a loss of sense of self-worth she was advised to and did take um, medication she went into uh, therapy to build up her sense of worth because they, that's what she was told she'd had a loss, something had happened uh, to her and while she was agreeable and conformed, in fact, to the various messages which were being given to her, uh, 
inside of, of her, she felt that something was really mistaken or wrong with the interpretation and the model being offered to her about what was true, what was authentic and what was real. And the essential message that she was getting was that she had to build up herself and that there had been a, a collapse, a tragic collapse and it had, had left her with this sense of no self, no I, no me and just emptiness. She then began to explore and look in other ways of interpreting this experience. One of the outcomes of this quest for her was to get in touch with the Buddhist world. Now, when the Buddhist world hears experiences of emptiness, of no self, of no I, me and my, it's Alleluia! <laughs> and a completely, a complete contrast in interpretation and in understanding of what it means to lose I, to lose the sense of me, to lose the self. And two or three years ago, she uh, came to uh, see, uh, see me. We um, um, spoke at some length with regard to these experience, this experience which she had had, the, the historical outcome of it, and despite everything, the tremendous benefits that had come, and in fact, uh, a mutual friend who's uh, um, a client of hers spoke to me very, very highly of this psychotherapist who had this uh, experience, and how Buddhist she was, naturally, in the style of approach, and how insightful it had been for this person, this mutual friend, who's a client of hers. So, in the talking and meeting with her, I uh, gave her all the support and affirmation there, and commented to her that over the years of the privilege of being a small servant of the Dharma, I've had the chance and opportunity to listen to many, many, many ranges of human experience, a tremendous spectrum of them, including religious, spiritual, mystical uh, experiences. And one of my rough rules of thumb, do you understand rule of thumb, rough criteria, rough guideline, is that the authenticity of deep experience is that it has some steadiness to it and some continuity in time. So, though for some people there may be quite dramatic uh, experiences taking place in these environments and in others, the intensity of the experience is no measurement or criteria for its authenticity or its validity. And as I said to her, that my rough rule of thumb, rough guideline, 
is if the person can say to me uh, a year and a day, rather a number plucked out of nothing really, but if a year and a day the person can still speak to me of the influence of that experience, which is beneficial and meaningful and eye-opening, then it's some indication that it registered and had some impact. One needs the authenticity of time. And, and that gives some, it qualifies the experience, it gives some authenticity to it. Well, her experience happened to her 10, 12, 15 years ago, I can't remember then, so as I said to her, well, sounds to me like you're overqualified with this experience. And, and in important experiences of life, which for some people shake up the worldview dramatically, it may go against the conventional thinking which takes place. And that's where two or three things generally have to take place which uh, give validity to deep experience. One is that one knows in one's heart it's a genuinely important and deep experience. One knows that. One hasn't made it up. It's not a fantasy. It's not a projection. It's not an exaggerated interpretation. One knows in one's heart of hearts there's validity and authenticity. The second kind of confirmation which comes from uh, such experiences is through the association and the contact with others who know that same experience, who know that as well and as intimately. And the tradition, in uh, this case Buddhist tradition, in its wisdom, since the Buddhist tradition is a tradition of the heart and mind essentially, it's a tradition which says, let's awaken the inner life, has said and has repeated itself not only does something have to be authentic and validated from within, it needs further validation from without, from those who know as well. That often will be, of course, the Dharma teacher, providing she or he knows those experiences, and sometimes it's that close uh, contact and friend or associate who has known that event as well and can confirm as well. So, the validation comes from within, it comes externally, and also it comes, as I said previously, in the course of time. Those three things in the field of understanding need to be at work and to be valid. And as I said, sometimes the intensity of certain experiences actually don't say too much about them. It's not the drama of the situation. And so, in this particular person's case, particular woman's case, hers became uh, a story of her uh, process through life and with quite a drama to it. And so, she sent me a copy of the manuscript and I went to the uh, local coffee shop, the Breen's, in uh, Totnes High Street, which 
small advertisement I can recommend very well and sat down to read it and some of us particularly uh, unfortunate like people like me um, tend to receive all too many things to read from people and I got something else I got two things today to come in um, Andrew Harvey's book uh, Return of the Mother which I'll say less about and um, uh, other things so I sat down to read this book in the coffee shop one, as it were one more manuscript to read and I read it and I read it and I sat there two or three hours had gone by I read the whole damn thing cover to cover I was just fascinated with this uh, um, account that I, that I uh, read and honestly I read it for itself and not just, not just because Christopher was quoted on one page in the middle of the book <laughs> but sometimes I <laughs> anyway it's another story <laughs> somebody said to me that, um, that um, what do you call him philosopher of, the, of consciousness uh, Ken, Ken Wilbur a number of you would know his books um, can't remember, up from Eden or down from Eden or somewhere from Eden anyway and uh, the Atman Project and um, Beyond the Boundaries I can't remember the, the, the titles but he's well loved and he's written this huge book called um, I remember the word sex is in it the title and um, ecology and something else and uh, it's about 800 pages and somebody from the States uh, telephoned me some months ago and said um, Christopher have you read Ken, Ken Wilbur's have you read his latest book and I said um, no, no, I, no I haven't and um, he says are you going to read it I said well I hadn't thought, thought too much as I appreciate um, Ken Wilbur's writing and then he said um, oh there's a reference to you, to you in it and I noticed the eye came up quickly <laughs> in, the degree of interest was accelerated <laughs> tremendously I, I had no interest in this book before <laughs> so I rang up Arcturus, another advertisement, Putnam's High Street and I said, have you got Ken Wilbur's latest book, book in? and they said, no Christopher, but we can get it for you but it's about £35 and I thought, well I'm not that interested in it so I let it go so I just use it as a small example um, whatever the amusement may be there or not of how there's experiences of life that go on a woman has a dramatic and transformative uh, experience which takes place uh, for her there the outflows come and there are the other experiences as well and sometimes the presence of the I comes in noticeably, and just use the personal example there. the presence of the I comes into consciousness with feelings, with associations, with thought, with speech and with action I'm not interested in this book name is mentioned, I am interested the I took birth in the here and now and the outflow from it whatever it might be there and therefore the presence of the I the arising of the I 
comes through the impact and influences of circumstances and therefore when our I arises what does it arise with? You can't have any inherent self-existence the I arises in association with and what it arises in association with shows our wisdom, our well-being or the nightmare of existence or somewhere in between and we have this remarkable and it's our, perhaps the greatest blessing and grace of existence we do have an element of awareness which allows and enables the eye to stand out that little bit more clearly and what it's associated with and sometimes, as the Buddha said frequently enough what it's stuck with not in a permanent way but sometimes the eye is stuck with glued to caught up in, trapped in, identified with and the eye therefore is made up of, like glue and therefore the factor of awareness the body of teaching the meditation, the inquiry is to unpack, unglue, unstick the eye around what it gets stuck with And we, hopefully, are looking into what's the formation of I which is arising and what it gets stuck with. One can read and hear of um, various experiences and I just referred to the, the person's manuscript and in reading and hearing and some of you will have um, read various uh, books past and present which are an account or accounts of other people's experiences some of whom have become famous in religious spiritual circles sometimes we read uh, the mystical poetry we hear accounts and we can say to ourselves in all of what we hear and read well I don't know, I've had, never, no, had no experience of all of this I haven't had any dramatic earth shattering mind blowing um, event in my existence and I hear these uh, experiences one might say and the very title of this manuscript is called um, Collision with Emptiness this is rather, rather a nice title Collision with Emptiness and one says well, I haven't had any collision with emptiness I've collided with other people a few times in my life and I've collided with myself in things that I have done or failed to do but collision with emptiness uh, dissolving into God oh God, never 
And so then, hearing of these experiences can bring for oneself some unrest. I, this poor I, I haven't had that. I've had negativity. My eye's been associated with that plenty of times. I've had fear, I've had unrest, I've had pleasure and pain, and I've had my ups and my downs, and I've had my views and my opinions, and I've had my joys and my grief, but I haven't had this collision with emptiness, and or I haven't found God, or I I've no idea what you're talking about when you speak about the liberating truth. I just seem to have had my ordinary, rather monotonous, everyday mind from one day to the next. And how very easily, as one of the uh, teachers once commented, how easily a form of spiritual materialism comes in. There's no shortage around us of consuming, consumer materialism of wanting to keep up with the Joneses they have had, they've got so much in the material world and I've got so little and then there's emotional materialism oh, these people have such a thrilling, thrilling and exciting life and there's so much so uh, charged and there's so much uh, excitement and and they've got so much more than my life. This is the envy of, uh, through emotional materialism. And then, blow me down, we have the spiritual materialism. They are having these experiences. They're sitting in this meditation hall, probably in the deepest transcendent samadhi ever known to humankind. And I've still got my wandering mind after 48 hours. And this is the spiritual materialism that goes on. And while this person who writes the manuscript intends to, with much humility and understanding, share her experiences of how Western understanding of the mind, general Western secular understanding, was utterly inappropriate for her experience, and wasn't understood, and how easily with ourselves. You say, well, I, nothing has happened, and this person's had this experience. Why should she be so lucky? Why don't I have these tremendous explosions and collisions with consciousness or the cosmos or whatever it is that one finds appealing? And sometimes there might be a serious um, note to that as well. One might need to ask oneself, not from the standpoint of spiritual envy of somebody else's account of their ex uh, experience like that, but is it that my life is just going along in a kind of monotonous, safe, secure, humdrum way. And therefore my consciousness is being deprived 
of the opportunity for a, a, another kind of receptivity to existence. And that matters. And sometimes we, it, we need to, to be shaken. To be shaken. And as one person said today in the group this morning, that sometimes that being uh, shaken comes through knowing something, as one person says, knowing that he is HIV uh, positive, strikes the system, makes one alert, makes one feel differently about the relationship to life, about the receptivities, the interconnection with uh, other people. Do we need the drama of the woman who writes the manuscript or the drama there which reminds us that life isn't eternal. Nobody knows. Your life and my life, it might be 95% over. Nobody knows. And so, in situations of life, do we need drama to be the springboard for change. For some, that's what it takes. But one, that is the drama, doesn't have to be the cause for change. Can, an an understanding and insight, can a simple pure and rather direct awareness of existence without drama to it be the springboard for opening the heart and the mind. Let any major event in your life or my life being a spark to create a fire. It's rather a lovely passage in the text. And uh, I get reminders of it from time to time when I go to India. And I go to um, uh, uh, Gaya, Bodh Gaya, place of the Buddha's enlightenment, and a number of people in this uh, hall here who have been there. And it's a small village with... Uh, a number of um, monasteries there, which initially were encouraged by um, Nehru, who sent out an invitation to Buddhist governments, inviting them to build a monastery uh, showing the um, monastic artwork, one might say, of that respective country. So you have the Thai monastery there, and the Burmese monastery, and the Chinese monastery, and the Japanese monastery, and the Bhutanese monastery, and the Nepalese monastery, and the Sri Lankan monastery, etc. All with their various cultural decor, uh, reflecting the various um, um, monasteries there, and frankly most of them are an eyesore. And yet, in all of that, they serve as places of pilgrimage as well for various Buddhist pilgrims who are often making their once-in-a-lifetime trip to Buddhgaya to sit under the Bodhi tree, to be at the Bodhi tree there, pay respect to the 
to the Buddha, major centre of pilgrimage. And in this area uh, of uh, Budgaya there, two and a half thousand years ago, the Buddha was giving some teachings and a leper came and at the back of the hall to listen to what was being uh, said. And Buddha gave a general body of teachings on the here and now, Ditte Dharma, as he was speaking, here and now, the seeing of a thing, literal translation, and that freedom, nothing can stop freedom, immediacy of freedom, regardless of bodily condition in this case, or whatever, and was pointing to this. The leper, listening to what was said, understood immediately there and told the Buddha so. No drama, no traumatic event or or whatever, simply in the actual activity, shall we say, of the listening, all the understanding came utterly clearly. And in it, and yet the clarity uh, of it, the problem of being a leper, therefore identi- the I identified with the body, I am a leper. And Gaia, and both Gaia and that area, in Asia, still has the highest number of lepers in Asia. Still the number of lepers still continues to grow in that particular area, whereas everywhere else in India and the rest of Asia, the incidence of leprosy is declining, except in this particular uh, area, and tragic it is to, to see. So, there is a situation which is there, that just in the process of the listening itself, in this case, something was understood, which was concerned with the truth of existence, which was simultaneously liberating, and in the case of the, the, the leper, the liberation from the eye's identification with the problem of being a leper. It's the eye, through continual association with organic existence, the eye thinking, this is who I am, the eye being bound up with that, stuck with that, glued with that, something took place, something was understood, the ungluing was immediate, and therefore there was a liberating insight, which he, the the, the leper, probably could never explain. Probably could never communicate what had happened, or, or if anything happened, or whatever, but something in the depth of understanding, knowing he was free from the problem of existence. In this case, the problem of existence in the form of leprosy and whatever form it might take place in our life, and that's just one of them. So in the range and spectrum of things, and in the manifestations of experiences,
<laughs> oh God, the world works in wonderful ways, isn't it? And, um, and so sometimes I can stretch the metaphors greatly here, and sometimes our life is turned over by things. <laughs> anyway, I'll try and stop it at that point. And, and there's a recognition of turning point there. The recognition of turning point may be in the time and the moment that it happens. It might be in the time and the moment that it happens. But it isn't always. And we move in the course and the passage of time to so-called the future. And then we will say, we might say, to ourselves and to others, that experience was a turning point in my life. I didn't know it at the time, but I knew it a day later, a week later, a month later, a year later, five years later, ten years later. And when one says, well, what exactly was the experience? One may not be able to actually find it. Oh, it was the experience of going to India. What's going to India mean? Which part of India? In the chai shop in Benares? Or when you got off the aeroplane and your foot touched down on the dirty tarmac? Or um, when you were being hassled in the marketplace? Or when you were sitting in the ashram um, um, meditating on your navel? Or whatever it might have been. So when all one says, well, it was on the retreat, or when I was in the countryside, or when this, when this person left me, or whatever it might might. Might, might be, or something just spontaneously happened, whatever. So these experiences which take place, there's some passage of time, short or long, we turn our attention back and we say, this is a turning point in my life. And before this point, I was like this, but afterwards, I was like this. And many people, of course, on the earth, naturally in validity, give, uh, can speak in that way. But actually finding the point, the moment, can be extraordinarily difficult. The potency of time and memory and reflection and conviction all come in together. Since I can't necessarily find the dramatic point in my life, do I need to have one? Do I need to have one? Others will say, I had this incredible experience in my life. And it was like a changeover night and day then say, well, when? Oh, when I was in, when I, when I, but when, which, which, which day? Well, I'm not quite sure what day, what, what period is it? Well, I'm not quite sure about it. What, what week was it? Well, I'm not quite sure, etc., etc. So actually defining it can be extraordinarily difficult. Yet the turning took place. 
since I can't really, or it might be very difficult to find the moment of turning, do I need anything? Do I need something to happen to me? Maybe we don't. Maybe, in reality, we are actually already okay. And we don't need any event in consciousness to confirm it. The very truth of existence is its own confirmation already. When I was in the, 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 the monastery, um, sometimes Westerners would come. This is in Thailand, I've got in mind here. Now, anybody, anybody who's ever lived in a monastery, if any of you, any of you have a hat, especially, I don't know what Christian monasteries are like, but I would imagine they're rather similar, but certainly Buddhist monasteries, tend to attract some of the most eccentric people imaginable. You know, it, it's the, all sorts of odd people end up shaving their heads and putting on robes. And you get this quirky group of people who would never choose to live together, living together. And it's a kind of a collection of oddballs who have agreed through the discipline, through the tradition, and in Buddhist monks' case, through 227 rules, a large percentage of them are completely daft. And yet you have to all agree to come under this, the weight of this uh, tradition. And it has impact on consciousness, it has an impact on one's life. And some of those who came into it, and, and who still do, would go to one monastery and stay there for a period of time and say, no, this is not it. This is not the place. I'm not meant to be here. And then go off to another one. And say, no, no, this is not it. And then to another one. And there was this kind of floating flotsam of monks wandering around monasteries and, oh, you're back. And then they'd stay for a while and then move on to another place. And they were the kind of... And then there are others who would leave one monastery because of all sorts of reasons. They couldn't move and they had to stay there, etc. In all of this, myriad number of types and personalities there, and I'm not excluding myself, obviously. You know that. The person is looking for something to change. Looking for something to happen, to make some experience worthwhile. Well, if I've sacrificed so much to become a Buddhist monk, and there is a lot of sacrifice involved. If I've been able to give up, have to give up so many of the pleasures of life, even normal ones like e eating a decent meal in the afternoon, having intimate relationships, 
and uh, living a lifestyle which um, is much more comfortable, fun to give up, all of that, then I want something for my investment. And what I want for my investment is something to happen to me which enlightens me. And then the thought goes, well, there's got to be something which will do it. Hence, mind is moving, and in this case, going from monastery to forest, to the desert, to the cave, to the jungle, to another country. I remember one, one monk, just, I mean, he was a legend. A legend of indecision. Because he went hither and thither, hither and thither, and nowhere was right. And no matter how much it was said to him, there was a conviction that he would find the place in order that something would happen which would enlighten him. That mindset and formation isn't just something for monks. So we can be in a mode of exploration and inquiry and meditative awarenesses and looking at existence and also sometimes waiting for something to happen because if something happens to me then it's a confirmation that all my effort has been worthwhile. How about a renunciation in life in which lots of effort is applied and there's no fruit. No fruit. No gain. Then what will the eye say? I come have to come into this well, I thought it was a medi- nice meditation hall when I arrived here at last space, I'm not, not like the old guy house of people breathing down my neck all the time. Plenty of space in here. Nice curtains. Green. No summer, of course, but of course this is England and what can you expect? And, um, and then once one's got mildly used to what is around, and then one is sitting, and then there is the, the quest for the perfect posture. And I'd rather have the perfect posture than liberation, compassion, profound experience. I'll just, just give me a posture which my body will accept. And so one comes in to the situation and it seems like through the number of sittings that are taking place during the day often a lot of effort being applied to be mindful, to be aware, to be still to be with the pain, to be with the um, moment to keep alert, to... Uh, struggle over tiredness, irritation, boredom, agitation, discomfort, memories, planning and everything else that the mind and body can concoct through the sitting. 
and it seems like a great deal of effort for that. And the wish is that making that effort, I'll get something for it. I'm going to trade in all this effort, I'm putting all this effort, I'm using it as my buying potential to get something in return from it. And sometimes it seems terribly unfair because I'm putting all this time in and the only thing I'm getting for it is such relief when I hear this (laughs) 45 minutes later. (laughs) And I think, have I come here to end up praying for a God I don't believe in for the bell to be rung. <laughs> and so sometimes we say, here's all this outgoing of struggle, work, effort, determination, etc. In order to arrive at something which I don't quite know what it is. Yet somewhere or other I've picked up a message that there is something which all of this is for. But what it is, I don't know. And God knows where it's leading me. Because I don't know what the end is. I don't actually know if what I'm doing has any relationship to the end. Where where does all the effort come from? All the practice come from? all the meditation come from, all the determination and the struggle come from, yet it's all a coming from, yet, yet not really knowing where it is and where it's leading. So there's something of mystery running through all of this and the I, the self, cannot explain it. Something going on which one can't explain. And perhaps there's something rather deep and profound about that, which brings a certain humility to our I, to our self, to our notion of me and my experience, me and what I am working towards. So sometimes there is an awareness that shows perhaps the I and its appearance isn't very relative, isn't very significant in all of this, which we call mystery, which we call the unknown, which we call the meeting with emptiness, or whatever. Maybe the eye is not really the main event. And the main event is not I. Just as the psychotherapist experienced in a rather explosive way. Just like the leper understood in an utterly non-explosive way. May your beings 
seen to life, may all beings seen to the experience of things, may all beings live with wisdom. So let's have a couple of quiet minutes together, shall we please?